everybody. In this episode of Trek in Time, we're going to be talking about what it means to try to find a peace and what it means to protect the unprotected. That's right. We're talking about Siwi Packham Parabellum. And for those of you who weren't ready for this, and that includes Matt and me, we're also <laughs> going to be talking about Into the Forest I Go. So this is a two episode review. Yep. And as we've talked about before, viewer feedback has been very clear. We are trying to tackle two part stories in one go so that we're not left with no conclusion or in some cases rehashing stuff because the second part relies so much on a discussion of the first part. But Star Trek Discovery, unlike Enterprise, is guilty of a new phenomenon in yeah. the streaming world where as they're putting together a streaming series, some episodes are very clearly A leads into B and you get that. But then there are certain times in streaming where they're like, A doesn't just lead into B, A cliffhangers into B. Yep. And sometimes it's not something we're aware of. We don't see part one and part two as labels as much on some of these shows. So back in the good old days watching Next Generation and seeing Best of Both Worlds part one as the show title, you knew, I bet this is a two-parter. Mm -hmm. But here we were looking at Siwi Pacum Parabellum, unless that's Latin for to be continued, we weren't aware of it. So we apologize for no warning. We apologize for dropping this episode without viewers being aware we were going to be hitting two at once. But after hearing my rambling lead in, I hope you'll jump back out of the episode, watch the second episode, which is Into the Forest I Go, and then come back and watch this discussion. And after all of that, there was a lot of talking. I still haven't said who we are. I still haven't <laughs> told you where you are. I haven't told you why we are. Who are we? Well, this is Trek in Time, where we take a look at all Star Trek in chronological order. We also take a look at the world at the time of original broadcast. So we are currently past the halfway mark in the first season of Discovery, which means we're also talking about things in the latter half of 2017. It seems like just a few years ago. But it also feels like it was a lifetime Ages. ago. Yeah. <laughs> mm. I feel like a different Sean Farrell lived that. And who are we? Well, as I just like cats out of the bag now, I'm Sean Farrell. I'm a writer. I write some sci-fi. I write some stuff for kids, which includes my just recently released, as of the time of this recording, it came out just a few days ago, my new middle grade adventure series, The Sinister Secrets of Singe, book one has just dropped. And as Matt has been trying to hammer into my brain, I should let people know not only about the book, but about events coming up for it. So right now I have an event coming up on Saturday, June 24th at 12 PM at McNally Jackson seaport location, McNally Jackson, a wonderful bookstore in Manhattan, New York city and their seaport location, which is located on the Southern part of Manhattan. It's a Saturday. It shouldn't be too difficult considering that neighborhood is largely financial district. So on a Saturday probably is a little easier to quiet. get to by car and maybe walk yeah. around and find places to eat. And the seaport area is a terrific place with a lovely view of the water looking over toward Brooklyn. So if anybody's interested in joining us there, it's at 12 PM again on the 24th. And I hope to see you there. And with me as always is my brother, Matt, he is that Matt of Undecided with Matt Farrell, which takes a look at emerging tech and its impact on our lives. Matt, how are you? I'm doing good. I got your copy of your book, showed up at my house last week, and my wife had ordered her own copy. And for some reason, it's been delayed by like two or three weeks. And so she stole my copy and <laughs> she's reading Very it. Good. So I haven't had a chance to start it yet because she took it. So I, I can't wait and to read it. that's what marriage really is all about. It. Yeah, exactly. And that's what family is for. Everybody in the family buying their own copy and then stealing them from each other. Exactly. As we always like to do, we're going to start off with some viewer comments from previous episodes. Matt, what did you find in the comments for us this week? So one from Pelgo69, Those we talked about spoilers last time where we actually, there was some yeah. stuff we wanted to talk about that comes later in the season. He wrote, those spoilers from last episode actually made the show more enjoyable for me. Although I have to question some things now. <laughs> yeah. That was funny. 
And this ties into the next comment, which started a little chain discussion from Dan Sims that said, the one thing I don't like with Tyler is that he is integrated a little too well. Without trying to spoil it, let's just say that, damn, he is cultured. He doesn't miss a step. Yes. <laughs> so I don't want to give any spoilers yeah. away, but there's a couple, there's a comment after that, that kind of like doubled down on that of like, yeah, there's some stuff that's kind of like with some of these characters, things that happen later. It's kind of like, well, wow, he integrated really well into this crew. And when we find out stuff about him later, it's kind of like, how did he do that? <laughs> yeah. And there are certain aspects of that, that as we move forward into the next few episodes, and it will be refreshing, I think for me to get yeah. some of these big reveals behind us because it makes some of these conversations a little tricky, but there yeah. are going to be moments where some of the reveal I think makes for some really fascinating character revelations. Oh yeah. And some of the character, some of the reveal, I think really kind of raises question marks that the showrunners just for whatever reason, were willing to kind of hand wave away. And I mm -hmm. do continue to have a problem with, and it's a, I'm, I'm on a weird razor's edge about some of these reveals in the sense of, I still like what they do. Yes. I like what they do with the show. I like the character arc. I like those things, but when I'm looking at it and I'm saying, I like this. And then I look under the covers and I'm like, but it's not well thought out and it doesn't make sense logically, but I kind of like tuck it back in. I'm just like, but I still like it. So <laughs> there's, there's going to be some of that coming out in the, in the future. And then there are other aspects of the reveals that I think work not only well, but raise really interesting connections to not only the character, but original track, which I really yeah. like, like my, in, in my viewing of all this, it really plays into kind of a deconstruction of what certain elements of the original series presented. And I really like that part. So we'll get yeah. all into that probably just a few episodes from now because we're it's like, not long. we're dancing yeah. at the door of those revelations right now in this discussion on these two episodes. So yeah. let's jump into that noise in the background. Of course, that's the read alert. We're all familiar with that, but what we're not familiar with was, is this, how long Matt is going to have to read this synopsis? <laughs> well, it's two synopsis, It's right? two synopses and synopses. these are a little wordy. So yeah. Okay. Everybody strap, sit strap back, yourself in. relax, close your eyes, think of the ocean and listen to Matt as he reads Stump, stumble my way through pack this. And parabellum and into the forest <laughs> I go. First time I've seen this. All right. So coming to the aid of another Federation ship, the Discovery is unable to prevent the ship's destruction by a Klingon ship that is using cloaking technology. Desperate for a way to detect these ships, even when they're cloaked, Burnham, Tyler, and Saru are sent to Pavo, a seemingly uninhabited planet with a naturally occurring crystalline transmitter that broadcasts the planet's vibrational frequency into space. Because, you know, that's how it works. Mm -hmm. They hope to use the transmitter to create a sonar for the hidden Klingon ships. Meanwhile, Laurel tries to help Cornwall, Cornwell escape in exchange for protection from Cole, but they're caught and Laurel apparently kills Cornwell to try to save face with Cole. His, he sentences Laurel to death for her actions. So well done, Laurel. The discovery off officers <laughs> learn that Bravo is inhabited with indigenous life that introduced Saru to their higher understanding of peace. And he attempts to force Burnham and Tyler to remain with him on the planet forever. Burnham is able to fight off Saru and broadcast a new signal. However, the Pavo lifeforms adjust the signal to contact the Klingons as well, hoping to end the war. And Cole receives the signal. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that was very matter of fact. Okay. Description for the second episode. Into the forest I go. Lorca is ordered to flee before the Klingons arrive, but disobeys in order to protect the lifeforms of Pavo and improve the Federation's chances of detecting the cloaked ships. And when the Klingons arrive, Tyler and Burnham transport to the Klingon ship and plant sensors that will help create an algorithm for detecting cloaked ships. They find an alive Cornwell hidden with Laurel, but encountering the later sends Tyler into shock due to memories he has of her torturing and raping him. Lorca has Stamets make 133 micro jumps with the spore drive in order to provide a three-dimensional reading of the sensors while Burnham distracts Cole by challenging him to a fight. The jumps are completed though not without trauma to Stamets. 
Uh, when the algorithm is calculated, Burnham, Tyler, Cornwell, and Laurel, who wishes to defect, are transported back to the Discovery, and the Klingon ship is destroyed. Stamets volunteers to make one more jump to safety, but tells Lorca it will be his last. However, Lorca secretly changes the coordinates, and they jump to an unknown destination surrounded by starship debris. This is what we were talking about. It's like a lot of these um, beating around the bush about we don't want to spoil stuff. It's like we are like literally on the cusp of a lot of these things yeah. starting to come, come to light. So see we pacum parabellum, which is Latin for if you want peace, prepare for war. Directed by John Scott, written by Kirsten Bayer. Original air date, November 5th, 2017. And it stars, as does the second episode, our usual cast, Sonequa Martin-Green as Michael Burnham, Doug Jones as Saru, Shazad Latif as Ash Tyler, Anthony Rapp as Paul Stamets, Mary Wiseman as Sylvia Tilly, and Jason Isaacs as Captain Lorca. And Into the Forest I Go, directed by Chris Byrne, written by Bo Yeon Kim and Erica Lipholt. Original air date, November 12th, 2017. Both these episodes also feature Kenneth Mitchell as Cole. Sadly, in 2020, Mr. Mitchell was diagnosed with amyotropic lateral sclerosis, the neurological disease that removes our ability to control our muscles. Mr. Mitchell makes appearances in Discovery in various roles. So Cole is not his only is not his only role in the show. We will see him in the future. And as they move forward in episodes and his disease became more pronounced he will eventually make appearances in a wheelchair and sadly after recent episodes were filmed the most recent being from the i believe the most recent and final season mr mitchell has lost the use of his voice so this is a degenerative disease and it is taking its toll on him he is only 48 years old and it is a real tragedy it is a reminder that diseases like this uh, continue to plague people with very little recourse. And it's something that is a sobering reminder. As I mentioned, the original air date of these episodes, November 5th and November 12th, 2017. And what was going on at the world at that time? Well, I know what Matt was breakdancing to. He was breakdancing to Post Malone's Rockstar. We've talked about this in recent episodes And we'll be talking about it for the rest of season one episodes. This song apparently took Matt and the world by storm and would hold on to the number one streaming spot for the rest of the year. And at the box office, everybody was lining up. I know I was to see Thor Ragnarok, which over this two week period made almost $180 million total. It would be the number one film both weeks. This film, of course, is the first of the Thor movies directed by Taika Waititi. It's from a screenplay by Eric Pearson and the writing team of Craig Kyle and Christopher Yost. It stars Thor's Chris Hemsworth, of course, and Tom Hiddleston, Kate Blanchett, Idris Elba, Jeff Goldblum, Tessa Thompson, Carl Urban, Mark Ruffalo, and Anthony Hopkins. It is, of course, the third of the Thor films following on the much darker toned films that preceded it. And on television, we've been talking about the transition into a streaming world. So the numbers are using calculations provided by Parrot Research, which worked with Insider to figure out what were the most viewed shows. And it's based on algorithms and research and looking at all sorts of data to create viewership numbers to be able to try and turn apples and oranges into apples to apples comparison. So we've looked in the previous weeks at how Game of Thrones, Walking Dead, Pretty Little Liars, Vikings, Prison Break, and The Big Bang Theory were the most watched shows. I will admit I was a little surprised to find out what the seventh most watched show was. It's The Flash. Really? On the CW. Are you surprised? With with 5.1 million viewers. I always considered it a well done show, but I did not know that it had a pocket. Yeah, yeah oh, it is. It, it's, it's, yeah. I think as far as DC is considered, I think that they had a good solid run on television where the movies were not yeah. as well received as Marvel's properties. But I always felt like the television shows were a lot of fun. Arrow yeah, and Flash were two programs that I really enjoyed watching, especially when my son was younger and he would, you know, he ate those things up. Um, but I was a little surprised like to see in the list right behind big bang theory and ahead of some other shows that are going to follow it. It was uh, a little surprising to see like, Oh, I didn't realize it was that popular. 
And in the news, well, over this two-week period, we had different news stories like on November 5th, in the wake of Hurricane Harvey, which had pummeled the southern United States, especially Texas, in August of 2017, the U.S. was looking at flood insurance programs that were broke and broken. They were insufficient, basically, to cover the costs of what climate change is now doing regarding flooding. And the U.S. was totally unprepared, and insurance companies went bankrupt as a result of the hurricane. Also in the news that week, a news story by Jeffrey Gettleman about the global ape trade, which steals apes from their natural habitats through beatings, druggings, and smugglings to get them to other locations for sale as either pets or zoo animals, or in some cases for worse conditions. There was also a news story by David Kirkpatrick about Saudi Arabia, the transition from the former king, King Salman, his son, Prince Mohammed bin Salman, was trying to take a firm control of the government in the days that were the ending of his father's reign and the beginning of his, and that included arresting rival princes and billionaires, and that had just begun. And from November 12th, the news stories at that point were largely about how President Trump was reshaping the judiciary in the weeks before Donald J. Trump took office, lawyers joining his administration gathered at a new law firm near the Capitol where Donald McGahn, the soon-to-be White House counsel, filled a whiteboard with a secret battle plan to fill the federal appeals courts with young and deeply conservative judges. Mr. McGahn, instructed by Mr. Trump to maximize the opportunity to reshape the judiciary, mapped out potential nominees and a strategy, according to two people familiar with the effort. Start by filling vacancies on appeals courts with multiple openings and where Democratic senators are up for re-election next year in states won by Mr. Trump, like Indiana, Michigan, and Pennsylvania. They can be pressured not to block his nominees and to speed them through confirmation, avoid clogging the Senate with too many nominees for district courts where legal philosophy is less crucial. We are seeing the fruit of that labor now as we just this past week have seen the historic indictment of former President Trump on federal charges, more than 30 of them, and the judge that he will be going before on Tuesday is one of his nominees. So on to our discussion about these two episodes of Star Trek Discovery. There's a lot to talk about. So rather than follow a plot-driven, let's talk about the episode in event order, just wanted to, I just threw together some bullet points. And so I'd like to start us off with talking about Pavo first. The (laughs) starting point of this first episode, it doesn't really play much of a role in the second point, which in the second episode, which I found a little distracting, like the fact that Pavo was so critical to the first episode and then there was no element about it what the planet nothing. was doing other than it being the target. Yeah. So the planet Pavo, what did you think about that as a setting? What did you think about what it did to Saru? Because the Saru story arc in this episode is really uh, a critical one. And what did you think about the originating steps of this storyline? I really liked Pavo and hated it at the same time. I'm very conflicted over this, this kind of plot point of these two episodes, partly because one of the things I really liked was I liked how alien they made this planet, not only visually, like all the leaves were like purple, like different colors and like the life form they come across is very alien. And how it kind of like this wispy kind of like thing that forms in the air and it's kind of like trying to communicate with them. I thought it was really cool. It's it's fun to see, oh, we're not just going to take a piece of latex and give a guy a different forehead and nose and there's your alien race for this episode. Very alien. I really enjoyed that aspect of the setup and the concept of the planet and how it was kind of communicating with Saru and connected with them. I thought it was really cool for me where everything kind of fell flat was oh they have this giant crystalline structure that goes all the way into space and they have this vibration that's gonna how does that go through space like what what is happening here like it was very hand wavy convenient don't think about the science or anything behind this it's just it's science it's magic it was like there was this aspect to it that really kind of rubbed me the wrong way 
Mm. And then by the time we get into the second episode where this is completely meaningless, it kind of just reiterated to me of, yeah, that plot point was just to instigate what they really wanted to happen in the show. And it really didn't have any kind of meaning, any of it. So there was, there was aspects of themes between different plot lines. I don't want to jump into the other plot lines yet, but like how, like this is about fear driving you. That's another aspect of this plot that I liked where Saru mm-hmm. says, my entire species, we live in a constant state of fear. Yeah. That's something we've never seen in Star Trek before, which I thought was really cool. Cause you got angry Klingons, like they work on anger and like, it's like all these passions that, that drive different species. But yeah. fear has never been one that's been a driving force for one of the main species that they've explored. So I thought that was pretty cool around how, how we communicate and how we can misinterpret that communication. And that kind of through line also exists in the other plot lines of these two episodes. So there is kind of a mirroring between the A, B, C plot lines where mm-hmm. there's thematic similarities, but the whole like just kind of hand waving this stupid giant crystalline structure up into space and the planet vibrates and they're going to make this a sonar beacon. Like what? Come on. That's not, come on. That's like the, the, the newest star Wars movies where it's like, what was it? The first order has that beam that they shoot through space and it like instantly hits these other planets that are light years away. Right. Speed of light people. It's like they would shoot that and it would take years for it to reach their destination. It's like, it's stuff like that. Like the, the yeah. whole explanation of what this planet can supposedly do makes zero sense like right. to me. And, and so, so it felt like a MacGuffin from the get go and it turned out to be a MacGuffin. Um, so well, I was just I disappointed think, in that aspect. Yeah. I agree with, I agree with what you're saying. Big picture. I think that for me, I'm going to talk about what you just talked about backwards. So I'm going to start with the crystalline structure and talk about it backwards. I think yeah. if it had been more in the vein of we're here to research the signal that this planet gives off because this planet gives off a sonar like signal that is unlike any other planet's native signal, because it is actually true that planets do make sound sound being a relative term because we experience sound as energy waves that go through air in space. Obviously you do not have that, but what you do have is complex interactions of charged electromagnetic particles from the solar winds hitting the ionospheres of planets and the magnetospheres of planets. And so every planet does have a kind of resonance that it sends out. And NASA has actually using satellites been able to capture that and turn that into sound. So you can actually hear what the planets sound like. And it's, it's whale song. It's like, it's that kind of like, it's a cosmic thing. And I think that if they had done a better job in this of saying this planet's tone is so unique and it has a quality to it that is similar to sonar and Starfleet is wondering, can we somehow do some research there? to understand how to use that yes. as an interstellar sonar. So effectively not saying like, we're going to send out a signal from the planet to help yes. us see everything. We're trying to research yes. something so we can take it and put it on our ships. That's I my think problem. that is in fact what they were saying. I don't think they didn't said it across well. I didn't, I don't think they said it no, well. Because when, yeah. here, no, because when, when they're setting it up, and they're turning it on. They're all acting like once this gets turned on, they'll know where all the Klingon ships are. That's the way they're acting. They're that's what acting no that sense. way. I completely agree with that. They are acting that way when what is really happening, I believe it is stated at one point that what they are doing is creating a signal to discovery that will be able to allow them to collect data to conduct future research. So it is a, it is I do not think communicated well. And if I'm wrong, then they should have done what I just said. So it's like, yes, yes. I think, I think that there is a thing here that from a sci-fi aspect does work. And I really wish it had been a little clearer and I wish it had been more impactful in the second part because Mm -hmm. to really tie these two episodes together would have been nice as far as the alien-esque qualities of what the Pavans are like. I also agree. I really liked the fact that they were so distinctive in how they were presented. And 
they get a little wishy-washy in how they're presenting them because they show what look like distinct figures, but effectively this would be a planet consciousness. This would not be individuals in the way that we understand them. So it's Gaia. They're basically dealing yeah, with there's Gaia. a little bit of like, yeah. I wish there had been a little bit more of an exploration of like, it's not a, it's not an it, it's more of a they, but it's not a they, it's more of an it. I wish it had played with a little bit more yeah. of that, but ultimately all of that does fall to the background because the real key concept is what they do to Saru and they turn Saru inadvertently into a bad guy. They turn him into a monster. And one of the things about this episode I did like and again, I wish there had been some elements of this pulled into the second episode. Saru nearly kills Burnham. Yeah. And the episode ends with a nice moment between the two of them where he reveals like my people are nothing but fearful. This was the first respite I ever felt from that fear. And when they first get to the planet, it is effectively giving him nonstop migraines in the form of like that resonant sound is doing something to his danger detection, which is setting him on edge. But once the Pavans know that that's how he's interpreting these various signals, they change it in some way to incorporate him into it. So it's not so much about peace. It's about harmony. And yes, that's a key distinction in the Pavan's actions, I think by the end of the episode, I think one of the things that is critical to understand is that, and, and here's where I wish the writing had been a little more sophisticated again in the second episode, Burnham and Tyler and Saru, when they return to discovery, basically like, oh, the Pavan's think that they can help create peace. It's more that the yep. Pavan's think that they can help create harmony. The Pavuans would not actually know what peace was. Right. So it's like, this is a, this is a really neat opportunity for distinct philosophical and underlying ideas of how things are to come into conflict. What is a species that does not know conflict? It only knows harmony. How would it begin to approach any kind of interaction with species that don't understand that level of harmony and have concepts of conflict, war, hate, like it, it, the, the aspects of that are very Star Trek. And I think they do an interesting job with teasing those ideas out, but they aren't the focus. The focus becomes the action. The focus becomes right. the survival against a Saru who is willing to lie to his colleagues, trap them on the planet permanently end game being when the discovery comes back doing what, like what was like, there is, there's a kind of psychosis here. He's not behaving mm -hmm. rationally. So it becomes then how do we survive with this maniac, which is reminiscent to me at certain points of the movie abyss where you have the one yep. character who's going through the bends and is trying to, you know, like he's literally cutting his arm underneath the table, trying to release nitrogen from his blood his psychosis is driving bad behavior with bad decision-making and an end game that involves a nuclear weapon. It's reminiscent of that more than it is like, what does it mean to be different from these individuals or are they even individuals? There's less of that. And I found myself a little, I wouldn't say disappointed. I would say the ideas that were raised, I wish there was an opportunity to revisit them a little bit deeper. Yes. But yeah. you know, it's, it's ultimately, I also did like the, the Saru aspect of this. I think it's a great opportunity. They took a really neat path into pulling back the hood and letting you know what the drivers are for that character and what mm -hmm. he might be like if he didn't have those parts, because he becomes, he becomes <laughs> focused on well-being and harmony in a way that really genuinely seems like, like he wants to be the good guy desperately but, but he becomes as you said how he, to he becomes a monster and not to give spoilers away there's aspects of saru in the future that tie into that a little bit because Absolutely. he's incredibly fast he's very strong and there's aspects of him of like if he wasn't living in a state of fear he could actually be very destructive if he wanted to be um yeah. so there's there's an aspect of that character that there's this kind of underlying scariness to him a little bit this unknown 
quality to, to Saru, which I really yeah. enjoyed. What can happen when it's unleashed. It's, right. Yeah. Which ties into his interactions with the other two crewmen. And I want to talk about the entirety of now, as we talk about Tyler and Burnham, we're now jumping into an element of the story that does continue. The Pavoans largely become, you know, at the end of the first episode, they're like, we'll help with harmony by bringing the Klingons here. And then mm-hmm. you can harmonize with them. And when they do that, the second episode becomes all about how does the discovery defend this planet against the Klingons, but the planet is not revisited. The planet does not play a role in helping solve that problem. However, the elements of the first episode regarding Tyler and Burnham do continue into the second episode. So as we talk now, I'm inviting Matt to remember that we can now talk about the entirety of the story arc in these two episodes. And I'm curious, what did you think about the stages of where they are in their relationship? I'll call it a relationship, even though it isn't like anything that's been heightened above a very clear attraction to one another. What do you think about the relationship in the first, the first starting points of the episode and how it's played and where it ends up? Well, it's interesting because like in the, the first part on the planet, when things start to go sideways, Burnham is being Burnham. She's trying to do the right thing, live by the letter of the law for how Starfleet should behave and realizing that Saru's out of commission. It was interesting to see how uh, Tyler basically in this blooming relationship, he's like, whoa, 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 I'm putting my foot down. I'm actually the in command here because if yeah. he's out, I'm the next in charge and we're not doing it your way. We're doing it my way. It was interesting to see that the first kind of conflict and tension start to form between the two of them, seeing how he was trying to be the protector and he was trying to yeah. be in command and take a leadership role and kind of put her in her place a little bit because he thought he was doing the right thing. It wasn't out of a, a bad place. At least that's yeah. the way it was portrayed. And then you get to the end of the the second episode and everything flips on its head. It's like yeah. he becomes, <laughs> he loses complete control. He goes into basically post-traumatic stress and loses his mind because he's having flashbacks of yeah. torture and all this stuff. And then she, she has to take command and take charge and do what he was trying to do on the planet. So it was interesting to see how it kind of flipped. And they played with that back and forth between the two of them across those two episodes. And also there's, we could talk spoilers, but we're not going to talk spoilers. There's aspects of what happens to him in both episodes, things he says across all of these that I would say to everybody, just keep in the back of your mind, all the stuff he's saying, like why he, like there's a point where he's talking about the Klingons and he said, he doesn't want to stop the Klingons. He wants to hurt them. And like, there's this element of truth to what he says and the seething anger that's inside of him when he says that i was like oh wow that is kind of profound it's like knowing what happens to him there's a double layer to that yeah i just loved and cannot wait to talk about it until that stuff starts to come out yeah but i thought it was once again they're laying the groundwork for these characters where we're perceiving them in one way and everything they're saying fits what we think is happening yeah, but there's this second layer to mo- from Lorca to Tyler that is just bubbling under the surface, and the yeah. show is never lying to us. It's it's fascinating how they're doing it's this. Not how lying it's like to us. It's even happening with Saru. It's, yes, yeah. You know, they're they're the the show does a, a a job that I can't think of another Star Trek show that has laid seeds like this to gestate over almost the entirety of a season in this kind of way it's real and it's really well done and it is these layers of um and it does it again with stamets but it does it in full vision like we're yes. watching it happen with stamets like the reversals yeah. and the lies and the hidden information we're watching that all happen with stamets and his entire thing is like i'm seeing all the possibilities meanwhile what we don't realize is that we're not seeing all the possibilities of what's right. happening in the characters. And for this episode in particular, Shazad Latif, who plays Ash Tyler, he does a fantastic job. He's he fantastic. really, he has yeah. to go from I'm the commander with a hint, just the slightest hint of, and I'm your boyfriend. So you got to do what I say because I'm trying to protect you. Like yep. there's a whiff of that. Yes. But ultimately he and Burnham are having what, I think both of them recognize is a complex, but professional conversation. 
Oh yeah. They have a difference of opinion about professionally what they should be doing. He is pulling rank on her professionally. It is also clear that both of them are like, we're into each other. That's making this rough, but neither of them plays the like, listen, I love you too much to let you go do that thing. So yes, that's like, I really like the writing and the acting from, uh, Sinequa Martin green and from Mm -hmm. Shazid Latif. Both of them do a really great job with that. And as far as the flipping goes, I think that for the first episode, Burnham is, you know, does a really interesting job of convincing, they convince Saru that they've kind of bought in by simply like pulling back on their pushing back. Like they just kind of like become quiet. And the conversation you referred to about him revealing how much Mm -hmm. he wants to hurt the Klingons is all part of a distraction. So it's a nice moment because he's using actual hate in that moment to distract Saru, who's crushed their communicators, trapping them on the planet. Also that Burnham can get to the crystalline tower and send the signal that she needs to send. Meanwhile, we're, given a moment of Stamets on the ship in a moment of confusion, we see him coming out of the chamber and he says to Tilly captain, what are you doing here? And we get the briefest of what I was just referring to of him revealing. Yeah. When I'm coming out of this cycle of being the navigation computer, I know things, but what I know is changed and it doesn't fit always. And it takes me a moment to realize when and where I am and what is going on. So we're given this hint of like, he's looking at things, he's seeing things beyond what they're supposed to be experiencing. So that's the aspect I want to jump into next. What is Stamets revealing in that episode? And what do we see (laughs) happening in the next one? So onto the aspects of Stamets and what Stamets reveals in the first episode and what we see happening through the second episode. What did you think about all of that? So the Stamets storyline is my favorite part of both these shows, both the episodes. He, to to me, this is like the heart. The, The Star Trek discovery does a really good job. Even though we, I was complaining a little bit about some of the plot elements. One thing that's always impressed me about the show is they do characters extremely well, like very well, uh, very nuanced storytelling around how characters are de- developing and evolving. Stamets in this episode, it, it's heart wrenching. His story is so heart wrenching because he is being affected in a way that nobody understands. He's trying to hide it to protect his his partner, the mm-hmm. doctor from having to report him as uh, augmenting himself and all this. kind. He's basically trying to protect his his partner and in doing so he ends up hurting that relationship but beyond that how this is affecting him you can tell it's a profound change to what he is and it could be killing him and so when he's asked to do the 132 jumps or whatever it is that he yeah. has to do as a viewer they bring that up and i as a viewer went like oh no because they've been doing yeah. such a good job showing this is not doing something good to him it's doing something potentially very bad. And now you're asking him to do this rapid jumps and the entire sequence of him doing those jumps and halfway in, he stops and there's that moment where there's like this pause and he looks to his partner through the glass and says, I love you. And then he starts going through it again. It was excruciating. It was like so painful to watch. And I have to like applaud the show for knowing how to really kind of do compelling storytelling around like humanity, what makes us like connected and like really playing against that. I, they were plucking at your heartstrings and they were playing it like a master. And so it's like, I was yeah. just, I just ate this storyline up. I loved what they did with his character. The hints that they're giving as to where the show's about to go, like literally at the end of the second episode, where it's what we're about to watch for next, <laughs> next week. Yeah. It's like they were laying the groundwork for what was about to happen and Lorca with his like little thing that he does at the end where he last second changes the destination as Stamets does the final jump all of that it's like I thought was beautiful especially that sequence between him and Lorca on the the launch bay when they're looking out at the earth there are two scenes with the two of them both of them are critical and key and 
The first one being Lorca's revealing to Stamets yeah, of, a, of data and mapping that he's collected from all the leaps. And, and Stamets, Anthony Rapp as Stamets is fantastic through all of this. Yeah. Um, as is Wilson Cruz, who plays his partner, the doctor. Stamets immediately recognizes that it is a map of all of their jumps. But within the data, he can also recognize what he has been experiencing, which is connections to time and connections to alternate timelines and parallel universes. So yeah. he is looking at this and I, and I, I love the fact that he looks at it for about three seconds and it's just like, recognize it. I know what this is because he's been looking at all of this. So Lorca is recreating something that Stamets is experiencing. By doing all of that the way they do, they give us the insight that Lorca is conducting some level of research that nobody else on the ship is aware of. But it's great how it's portrayed because it's like Stamets yeah. doesn't realize what's going on. Yeah. The captain's only showing him this because he's trying to manipulate Stamets to keep yes. doing what he's doing. And we and, see, it's, it's, yeah, we see the fruit of that. We know why he's end. about to do this because in the next episode, it's going to reveal why this is going on. But I love how Stamets says, I didn't know you cared when he's yeah. talking about what he's been mapping. And I know what he's why he's doing it. So I'm watching this. And when he says that, my heart sank. And I was like, oh, Stamets, he's not doing yeah. this because he's interested in science. He has ulterior motives. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. And that which leads into the conversation on the conversation the, overlooked yeah. from the shuttle bay, yeah. overlooking the planet and just the total exhaustion and feeling of finality in Stamets, he's really like, he's ready for the next step. And he tells his partner that he says to him, like, I, we have days and weeks and months of my recovery ahead of us where we can just be with each other. And it is a truly like he's come to peace with He's putting to rest the very pursuit that drove him to create the engine in the first place. And he's gone mm -hmm. through this thing that has burnt out his drive to keep going, going, going and find more truth. He's willing now to recognize that his pursuit of truth is in, is in conflict with what he has. And he is choosing instead what he has. He wants to help repair his own body and brain. He wants to repair the relationship he has with his partner and they do it in a nice callback way of him saying there's a opera house with Cassini opera and they are currently doing La Boheme, which is the type of opera in his revealing of how he met his partner. He shares that it was his partner was humming that type of opera. So it's a nice callback and it is a loving moment. The two of them have a genuine like it's hard. It, the doctor's portrayal is great. It's hard to love you. Yeah. And yet I do. It is the conflict within him is evident and his professionalism as the doctor is also evident. So that's a nice element in the episode as well. And then we see Lorca say like, look at all these discoveries that are ahead of us. We could figure all of this out and what time is and what alternate dimensions and parallel universes are and how this all works. We could finally understand the underlying truth to everything. And then at the end of the second episode, we see that he's typing in a destination, but it's, and he's effectively taking but, the ship but, where nobody else knows they're going to be headed. But before that moment, the, what the, the conversation, I don't know if you picked up on this, the portrayal of Lorca, uh, what's the actor's name? I'm blanking his name. It is, I always blank on his name, even though it is Jason Isaacs and it is an easy, simple name. Yeah. I always blank on it's, it myself. In that conversation when he's talking about, we can figure everything out and Stamets is like, no, I, I'm done. This is my last jump. When he says that to the captain, Lorca, th there's a flash on Lorca's face that is so subtle and so yeah. quick. I was like, oh damn, that was a good performance because you could see in that moment, he's devastated of like, oh crap. Yeah. And he immediately snaps back into, oh, I just got to brush that off and play it cool. But yeah. it's in that moment that Lorca makes the call of, he's got one shot to do what he's about to do. Yep. And this is it. This final jump, he has to make his move now. 
which is that number that he that the thing he does. It's like I love the how they set that up, and it was so subtle that at the moment, the first time I watched the show, Sean, I did not pick that up at all. Yeah, and watching it this time, it was clear as day. So it's yeah. like it's so much fun rewatching this and seeing just how subtle these performances are. That it, it, I just loved it. I was eating it up, Sean. I was just eating yeah. it up. <laughs> I completely agree. I find all of that the highlight of the show. I also, as we move into the next part, which is Laurel, the Klingons in general, the fight against the Klingons. There's a lot of, to go back to what we said about Pavo, there's a lot of hand waviness around like, oh, we can actually figure out a way to detect cloaked ships. Like, oh, it requires putting sensors on the ships. And like, you're telling me that nobody in Starfleet has thought, well, if we could only get a sensor on those ships, we'd be able to track them and maybe figure out. So like, so it's like, there's a lot of like, okay, they're just trying to get things moving forward. I'm okay with all of that because a lot of the stuff that does happen is compelling or interesting. And we have on the one side, everything we just talked about, the super subtlety of Lorca's motives. He wants to do something revolving around the whole parallel timeline, parallel universes. That is his key goal for whatever reason and his manipulation of Stamets and his punching in numbers at the end and taking them to a place where they're like, we don't have a clue as to where we are. That's all super subtle. The Klingon stuff ain't super subtle. It is a lot of just straightforward (laughs) action. We even get Burnham challenging captain cole to a fight questioning his honor questioning i love the fact that it was you know right down to she knows that's not his ship so she's like you stole a ship you like how are you an honorable klingon and revealing who she is pushing them basically just to keep them where they are because she knows they were about to run and if they had run the discovery wouldn't get the data it needs. So she's keeping them in place. That's another aspect of this. That's a little bit like hand wavy. Like Cole wouldn't be like, all right, I'm going to fight this lady while I'm fighting her, hit the warp engines and get us out of here. Yeah, exactly. There's no reason why everybody's just going to stand around and be like, Oh, before we leave, the captain's going to kill this lady. So they could have had her just destroy something that breaks the navigation system. So they can't jump. They they could have done something, you know what I mean? She could have been there and sabotage something. Yeah, she could have sabotaged something. She shoots a couple of guys. Well, can, you know, just have somebody like she just shot our pilot. Like, have somebody say that. Like, it's it's certain on, aspects of this that are hand wavy. On the Klingons in general, I don't know how you feel about this, but it's it hit me why I don't have a lot of memories of all the Klingon scenes from this show. And rewatching it, some of these Klingon scenes, I'm like, I completely forgot this was even in this. Like, it mm-hmm. just like washed over me. I, I realized, I think for me, the reason is, is that the Klingons, the way they're portrayed, it feels so distant. Be, and I'm wondering if it's the way they were directed or written mm-hmm. or, the, or the performances, because the makeup they've got on is so thick that there's yeah. no subtlety to performance. It's just a bunch of guys and women standing around just kind of like slowly barking words that mean nothing to you because it's in a foreign language. And so I, I've never got emotionally connected to what was happening. And it was just kind of noise to me, just kind of a white noise in the background. Yeah. And it's like, it's just, okay, well, let's get through this scene to get the next, to get back to the characters we actually care about. I, and I, I understand think that's, what I you're think saying. And I th- yeah. But, the, but it's like, think about like next generation. It's like you have Worf, you care about Worf and right. all the machinations of the Klingon high council and in, in deep space nine and next generation were riveting. There were great yeah. stuff. There was amazing stuff. And I think it came from the performances and the way those characters were written. And on this one, it feels a little more like we're watching a Shakespeare, like, yeah. you know, stage play. It is in definitely front of us. portrayed more as a Shakespearean yeah. experience. And I think there's also an aspect to it that comes from immersion. They aren't as successful as immer- uh, immersing us in the yeah. Klingon world. It is much more. We are only there to see Burnham. So that becomes the focal point. It's almost like the Klingons are in the background at all times, even when they're by themselves. And there are, I think there are subtle aspects to the depiction of all this, but they're sometimes so subtle that they get lost. And I, and going back to the idea of immersion for me, one of the key things about the lack of immersion in the Klingon stuff is that usually there's only one or two Klingons who talk 
and you think about <clears throat> some of the great immersive scenes in Klingon depiction in Star Trek, when Kirk and McCoy go on trial in Star Trek six is well, one of the best depictions of, of Klingon culture where they're being put on trial by the general who is basically starting a coup and the way it is depicted, you feel like they are in a Klingon world, but in this through the fact that only well, Cole it's, really talks. It's, it's, it's for me to be specific here, Sean, it's like Laurel. Laurel could have been like Gaius from Battlestar Galactica. Yeah. Where he's this kind of delicious villain that will do whatever he needs to do to weasel his way out of whatever situation yeah. he's in. And you kind of like really get into that character because he's kind of charming, even though he's a jerk. It's like Laurel is kind of like she's out to kind of protect herself and she keeps flipping sides and whatever's convenient. She's basically doing what Gaius did in Battlestar Galactica. Yeah. But there's no there's no depth to the character. It's all very surface level. And they're like when she's getting caught in a lie through that thick makeup, there's never a flash of, you, you can tell, oh, she's trying to puzzle her way out of this one. It's like, no, yeah. it's just like suddenly she's saying something completely different. It's like, this goes against what you just said before, but like there was no, it feels like you're looking at somebody through a mask, literally. Yeah. And so it's like, yeah. there's, there's, there's no connection to what's happening and they could have handled it differently and they could have made Laurel this really compelling, like weaseling her way through everything because <laughs> yeah, she, she could have been a lot of fun in next generation. You have the sisters of yeah. Dorot who, yeah. Uh, Duras who's, you know, their machinations go on for years and mm -hmm. they're played very, they chew the scenery every time they're on camera or when Picard goes to the Klingon homeworld in response to Worf's family dilemma. And yeah. you feel like, Picard is in foreign territory. He's in a place where he's like, he knows he's not the one who's going to call the shots. This is a totally different environment. And even though you only have a few actors talking, you feel like it's, you are completely immersed in it. It doesn't work as much in this. And I think it's not for a lack of trying. I think that they did do things to really try to push the, these aren't humans and the Klingon culture is harsh. One of the things I want to, I want to see if you interpreted this in the same way I did where they put Laurel, I interpreted that as they've been sticking their prisoners into a room and then simply not feeding them. Yeah. And I interpreted that as the Klingons who were put in that room were eating each other. Yep. Eating the dead and then mm -hmm. themselves eventually dying and more people thrown in. And it was a room full of half eaten corpses. And when you see that room is discovered because that is also where they've put Cornwell after Laurel effectively paralyzes her in a poorly conceived escape attempt to say to Cornwell, if I get us out of here, you've got to give me sanctuary. So let's go. They get caught partway through a hallway. She then takes Cornwell, smashes her against the wall, breaking her back. And then both of them get thrown into this room of half eaten corpses. When Tyler and Burnham find them there, Laurel does not look good. She has clearly been beaten and it is unclear as to whether she has begun to consume any of these corpses around Cornwell mm -hmm. is still alive, but we see like, I see stuff like that. And I'm like, they're trying, they're trying some things to give us this really alien like that room was the only room where i felt like like oh it's about the klingons in this room yeah yeah the fight on the bridge doesn't feel quite the same there's even an aspect no. to it where burnham says at one point klingon you know like klingon bridges are larger than ours and i'm like where in any of star trek have we seen a klingon bridge that looks anything like this and it like the depiction of it is like we're learning about klingons and like now you're actually contradicting everything we do know about Klingons. Klingon exactly. ships are always depicted as a little too cramped, a little too small. The Klingons always appear like they're on top of each other and like they're all like kind of like jostling for elbow room and ready to fight at a moment's notice, largely probably out of a sense of claustrophobia. I always got a sense in the Klingon depictions <laughs> that Klingons uh -huh. act as aggressively as they do because they don't have enough alone time. Like, 
Like I need to go be where I can't be around other people right now, but you're all right on top of me. So everybody's ready to go at any moment. So the description and the depiction of this ship doesn't really mesh with that. So there's aspects of that that are a little jarring and it's not, I'm all for newness and I actually am on board with the depiction of Klingons with all this extra makeup. I'm okay with all of that. I, it's like, I, I think I feel like I understood what they were going for, but there are certain aspects of it that just always feel like they didn't really think that through completely. No. It doesn't really no. jive with what we know or what we're anticipating. And it's okay to lead elements, leave elements in a show that slowly bring the audience into a deviation of previous depictions and explain, yeah. okay, there's a reason why this is different and an audience will follow you into a lot of those places. This feels a little more jarring. The, the way that this stuff is presented feels a little more jarring. Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree with that. To keep it in the Klingon stuff and the Laurel stuff and the Tyler stuff, the triumvirate of the three of them, the depictions of very obviously he has a rape flashback. He has PTSD and torture flashback. And he reveals to Burnham, I had to do, I had to make a choice to survive. And I made a choice. And that choice was, I would even encourage what she was clearly interested in, in order to stay alive. So there are a lot of moving parts in how that's presented. It's presented as unreliable flashback. It is presented as PTSD. It is, it is presented as a prisoner doing whatever they have to, to get out of terrible situation. And there is also a side to it, which is hard to interpret. I think when Laurel says to Tyler in one scene, yeah, I will not let them hurt you. Yeah. And it's almost time. So there are aspects to this that it's like on one side, you can say like, I see all this storytelling being about true hardship and turmoil and ways people get through it and the scars that leaves behind. And then there's the other side, which is this very murky, like, what are they talking about? Like what? And not, and not like poorly written, just like, oh, they're, they're holding something back. And what is that thing? Yeah, I, so yeah, I love. How that. do you feel about like this big ball of turmoil ties, and trauma, and how do you feel about all that? This ties into what I was saying before: is the show is not lying to us, but they are leaving things out. So it's yeah. all about how how we're perceiving the information at this moment, and then then later when additional information is dropped, re-perceiving what we got before. And it's not that it was a lie; it was we didn't have all the facts. I love that because it. I, I was really admiring all these flashbacks, the PTSD, the what looks like torture and the things he's going through. I remember watching the first time and thinking, wow, this guy went through some horrible stuff. And then yeah. when it comes to Laurel at the end saying, I won't let them hurt you. It's that what the hell is going yeah. on here? There's something else going back. No, way he fat, drops to his knees yeah. and he's yeah. like looking at her from his knees. It's just like, what? No, there's something there's something that's got to be yeah. beyond what we've already been seeing. And I just really and his flashback is clearly on. Klingon mating ritual. It is yeah. aggressive. It looks painful. It does not, it there's, it does not look romantic. It looks visceral and it does look like rape and it is, but it's mixed up with this response from her, which seems so caretaking and so loving. And it's, yeah. So it really is at odds with like what we would anticipate her being like in that moment. Yep. Yep. So it adds, it adds a really interesting wrinkle. Just finally, like big picture for me, I just wanted to share a couple of thoughts about things that stood out as moments that I, that I really liked in the episode. Um, I thought the action sequences, the battle on the Klingon bridge, the fight with Saru, Mm -hmm. I think they were well done. I think they added a nice, you know, Star Trek has always been about, let's talk what, about what it means to be, at peace. And let's also show people throwing each other around the engineering room. Like it's always been an action show as well as a philosophical show. That's one of the pieces of magic of star Trek. 
I think that the action sequences in this, in these two episodes, I think they did that well and they show Burnham able to holding her own against, I think it's a nice setup that you see her fighting somebody who she's clearly outmatched by, who's a friend in the first episode. And then she goes toe to toe with the person who has benefited the most from the opposing side. And she's able to hold her own in both those situations. She's barely able to defeat Saru and she effectively doesn't defeat Cole. She just escapes. So that's, that's a nice element. I also liked the space battle sequences. I thought that they were well choreographed and added again, a lot of fun to the show showing what discovery can do, especially during the sequence where discovery is bouncing all over the place, taking readings and the Klingons are basically like they're doing something. We do not know what. And Cole's very appropriate thought of like, let's get the hell out of here because they're doing something and I don't know what it is. So let's not stay around. Like he's a wise commander. And ultimately I also liked the conclusion of that with discovery being able to now clearly see their, their research has worked. They can spot the cloaked ship and they blow it out of space. And I liked that sequence of you see the torpedoes raining down on the ship from Cole's perspective and the camera backing up until finally the fireball takes everybody. It's a nice, it's a nice uh, sequence. The best bit of that though, the best bit of that though (laughs) is on the, is on the discovery when Lorca just starts walking towards the view screen and, and basically says, drops okay, his eyes, fire, yeah. the dink, dink, yeah. fire. And it was like, cause he wanted to be able to watch the explosion yeah. without hurting his eyes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Very like, subtle. Oh, this is, he's going to enjoy watching this thing explode. It's, yeah. That was another bit of like foreshadowing about Lorca and his yeah. motivations. He's taking glee out yeah. of watching an entire ship of beings get, destroyed get blown out of space that's yeah i also liked from Lorca the speech he gives before they go into battle yeah and he makes and it's a moment where and with Lorca, they've done a a magnificent job we've already talked about the fact that revelations are coming there's like there are things underground that we don't yet know for certain but one of the things that they did a great job of doing is they give you that like I've, I compared him previously to the mad scientist in a Gothic horror film where it's, there is this mm-hmm. imposing castle and it's got lightning behind it and it's a dark and stormy night and you get up there and this, this mad scientist is at work doing something that they shouldn't be doing. There's an aspect to that of him. And yet at the same time, they present you with a captain who is able to motivate and bring a crew together under extraordinary circumstances to the point where when he disobeys orders in this episode, he simply says to the crew, I don't think we should be leaving. We got to stay here and defend the puffins. And everybody on board is like, yep, they're with him. And then he makes a speech before going to battle, which is a rallying speech. It is comparable to something that Picard or Kirk would say, you're the best crew in the fleet. We have a terrible thing to have to do. It's going to be hard. Not all of us may come back, but we have to do it. And we know that. And he makes the point of saying, when you all came together, you were just a group of scientists trying to do research. Now you're battle hardened warriors. And it's a moving speech. It's he is a good leader. And that is one of the aspects of this that I think is terrific is that he is presented as this guy who's like, yeah, he's hiding a lot of stuff, but yeah, like he knows what he's doing. He's like, so whatever his ulterior motives are like, doesn't make me not like him i actually do like him so yeah that for me really stood out as like one of the big elements of this show feeling like i really like this guy and yet i recognize mm, he shouldn't be doing Something's that not right. to leap. he shouldn't be punching numbers into his chair uh, <laughs> and i think this is something you said just a few minutes ago i don't recall recognizing that he was doing something into nope. his chair the first time I watched nope. this. And this time I was like, oh yeah. Like I think yeah. the first time I ever watched it, I was like, oh, they left to some place where they don't know because Stamets is so tired. Yeah. This time through, I was like, oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they didn't hide it. It wasn't Stamets fault. Yeah. It was Lorca. It wasn't Stamets. It was, it was clearly Lorca doing yeah. this. So before we 
end this episode. Just wanted to invite our listeners to jump into the comments. What did you think about this pairing of episodes? Did you agree that it works nicely to set up a bunch of revelations coming up, even if you don't know what's coming? I'm curious, do you feel like this is laying a trail of breadcrumbs that make you want to keep moving forward and finding out more information? Also jump into the comments and share your thoughts on what the next episode will be about, which is titled Despite Yourself. And please remember, wrong answers only. And interesting that this next episode is episode 10. This is post winter break. So Into the Forest, I Go, aired on November 12th, 2017. Episode 10 is considered chapter two of the series. And it aired on January 7th, 2018. So there was a break there. And it's also nice to see the director of the next episode, one Jonathan Frakes. So it will be nice to see his work behind the camera once again. So let us know what you thought about this episode and let us know what you think the next episode will be about. And don't forget, if you want to support the program, you can go back to wherever it was you found us, whether it's YouTube, Google, Spotify, iTunes, and leave a review. You can also go to trekintime.show and you can click the become a supporter button there. It allows you to directly support us, which immediately makes you an ensign. And when you're an ensign, what does that mean? Well, you start getting our spinoff show in your feed out of time, which is where Matt and I discuss anything that doesn't fit within the confines of this program. So it might be other Star Trek, it might be Star Wars, fantasy, horror, whatever it is we're watching. Sometimes it's TV shows like Columbo. Sometimes it's movies like Knives Out. So we hope you'll be interested in checking that out. All of these are great ways to support the show. Thank you everybody for taking your time watching or listening, and we'll talk to you next time.